Hello, and welcome to the Whiskey Rebels. Only podcast about drinking where the hosts aren't getting drunk. I'm Drew Brackbill. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm John Nelson. And we are here today to present you with another balanced, sober discussion of the economic, philosophical, and the regulatory history of alcohol. Last week, we talked about the namesake of our podcast, the Whiskey Rebellion. This week, we turn to the most famous of alcohol laws, that is, prohibition. So, uh, U.S. prohibition was a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages, and was made legal by the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. The law remained in place from 1920 to 1933 until it was repealed by the ratification of the 21st Amendment. Private ownership and consumption of alcohol were not necessarily made legal under federal law, but local laws were stricter in many areas, with many states banning possession outright. Yeah, and uh, the, the, the origins of the temperance movement and the, and the prohibitionary moment in the United States go all the way back to the original colonists. I mean, the original colonists at, at the Plymouth Colony were, were concerned about the effects of alcohol. As early as 1633, Plymouth Colony prohibited the sale of spirits more than two pence worth to anyone but strangers just arrived. I could have done that in a funny voice, but I chose not to. Uh, <laughs> and our listeners are worse off because yeah, of it. Darn. Uh, more than two pence worth. Okay. There you go. Drinking was not frowned upon altogether because, of course, even though they were Puritans, they still liked to get crunk. Uh, at times. And when the Puritans set sail to Massachusetts, actually, they brought with them 42 tons of beer and 10,000 gallons of wine, which is a lot. Which was actually m- more than they even brought water with them. Yeah. Which I guess makes sense because there's water in the New World, but, but not beer. <laughs> there's not necessarily fresh water on the on the boat. On the boat so, yeah. you know, how much drinking were they doing on the boat? And at the time, remember, one of the main reasons people drank so much was because water was, I mean, this is, I don't know, this might be like a myth, but like water was not really a reliable thing because yeah, it was not, so dirty yeah, <laughs> like i'm not really the, sure like 17th century if that was the case but definitely well, i think like it was very early history times. certainly and I but in in london in the 1600s yeah, yeah I mean, probably, the dirt yeah. the, the drinking water was bad so it probably was just that they couldn't afford to drink the water <laughs> for fear of getting cholera um yeah i'm sure there's got to be like a boredom element element too i mean like back true. then what do you have to do like you don't have thrilling podcasts like this one to listen yeah, to it's true your options were sit on a boat or die of starvation <laughs> might as well get drunk yeah but the puritans also they were not hesitant to use the government to limit consumption of alcohol through the imposition of fines excise taxes and license fees uh but those might have been more revenue driven than moralistic although with the puritans i i would guess there was definitely a moralistic element to it as well historians are kind of split on that yeah um and uh as we mentioned last week later on in american history the tax on distilled spirits that led to the whiskey rebellion was pushed forward by Alexander Hamilton, uh, whom we are not a fan of. <laughs> not big fans. Not big fans of Alex H. Uh, I mean, I guess he did some good stuff, like spawned an inspiring rap musical, but um, also a rebellion. <laughs> and he, historians, like we mentioned last time, definitely believe that Hamilton had temperance-related motives by pushing through the the whiskey tax that led to the rebellion. Um and it, at least a secondary, possibly primary motive of that tax was to reduce the consumption of hard liquor in the United States. Uh, but the primary goal probably was to pay down the national debt. Uh, Al, Al Ham was kind of about all about the national debt. Although um, if people didn't pay it, it didn't really do a whole lot of good. Yeah, that's so. true. Uh, historically, it, yeah, it wasn't a very successful tax, and Jefferson got rid of it. But that's what our last podcast was about, so go listen to that one if you haven't already. And so... Much, much later, in 1826, the American Temperance Society was formed, and it helped initiate the first temperance movement and served as a foundation for many later groups. Actually, I guess that was only about 30 years after the Whiskey Rebellion. But by 1835, the ATS had reached 1.5 million members, and women constituted 35 to 60% of its membership, which was a lot for the time, because... I mean, when you consider that women actually couldn't legally vote until 1919, when the 19th Amendment was ratified, that's kind of a nice 1919, 19th Amendment. Okay, the Women's Christian Temperance Movement, Women's Christian Temperance Union was founded in 1873, which advocated for the prohibition of alcohol as a method for preventing through education, primarily education of children, abuse from alcoholic husbands. So the WCTU allowed women who couldn't legally vote to enter into politics, and it served as a gateway into other topics such as prison reform and labor laws, which at the time were topics of great interest to, to, to women. So 
This information comes from uh, Jack Blocker's book, American Temperance Movement, Cycles of Reform. And actually, a single-issue political party, the National Prohibition Party, was formed in 1869 with the main purpose of outlawing the production and sale of intoxicating beverages. The party was the first to accept women as party members, even though they still couldn't vote at that point. Fun fact, they actually still exist. Uh, they were actually pretty active in t- on Twitter during the uh, the last election, and it is the most hilarious thing ever. You'd swear it's a parody, but it's not. Wait, real? These people really? are real. Yeah, my, my favorite part that I found out was that there's 2016 presidential convention. Like, all parties have them to pick, like, who their nominee for president's going to be. They didn't have enough people or interest to actually hold a convention. Oh, I was so going like, to say, since, since, did since, they nominate the ghost of John Brown? Since they've actually held a convention in a hotel. There were so few people interested in this party that they just held a conference call. They literally held a conference call and were like, who are we going to nominate for president this year? And then they just they just came up with somebody. They, although they did was get... Was it the ghost of John Brown? Probably. Or? But they did get over 5,000 votes. So... The Prohibition Party still exists. That's crazy. Actually, weirdly, the the Women's Christian Temperance Union began as the women's branch of the Prohibition Party. So uh, both groups began to expand their efforts to support other social reform issues such as women's suffrage. So Prohibition and the Temperance Movement were very tied up in the extension of the franchise to women. And that this isn't a link that's often drawn, but women getting the vote also certainly led to the implementation of prohibition but even before like the sort of uh, national prohibition there were first there were uh, sort of early anti-alcohol laws stretching back to 1851 in maine uh, which completely banned the manufacture and sale of liquor uh, even though that was actually repealed by 1856 uh, 12 other states also passed similar laws although many of them were struck down by the courts as unconstitutional uh, then in 1881, Kansas became the first state to out- outlaw alcohol beverages in its constitution. And then by 1913, nine states had statewide prohibition and 31 other states had local option laws, which placed more than 50% of the United States population under some kind of alcohol prohibition. What's really crazy is that s- those local option laws still exist in some states, um, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, like several states have these local option laws where counties and s- some municipalities can are legally allowed to just completely ban alcohol. Um, Kentucky, like I think over half the half the counties in the state are dry, which is crazy because Kentucky's like the bourbon capital. That's where of bourbon the world. comes from. Yeah, yeah, like <laughs> bourbon county. That's just insane. Like even the the very county. I'm, I, we might be talking about this later in the episode, but the very county that Jack Daniels is in is a dry county. They literally can't sell Jack Daniels where it's produced. They can they can sell it on premise. Like Isn't they have Jack a, Daniels in Tennessee though. Yeah, Tennessee. Yeah, Tennessee right. also. I'm guessing Tennessee also has. Yeah, right. okay. Tennessee yeah. also has also has some dry counties. That, so. I mean, on the one hand, while I think that's crazy, I also do think that that's like a Hayekian localism thing. Like if the people in the county like don't want booze there, <laughs> I think they should be allowed to like gather together and be like, we're not going to have booze in our county. We're good Christian people. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. As a good Christian, I'm a, I'm a big fan of booze. <laughs> As a good Christian person. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the creators of Guinness beer were great Christians, so I don't think that's... Were they? Arthur Guinness? Was he a... I yeah, mean, probably. Very, Everybody was very, a great Christian back in ye olden times. Yeah, I'm saying like right now... Very devout <laughs> pre- Presbyterians. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of funny. Um... Right now, though, it, I think it kind of makes sense that like counties should be allowed to decide things like that. I mean, it does bring like brings up the issue, and we, we can probably talk about this later too. Is like, what size should people be allowed to prohibit things, though? Yeah, like should a federal sure, government so you be allowed to do county, that? Kind of thing? But like, why why can't you? Just, the state's not that much bigger than a county, right? Like, why what? State's not that much bigger than a county, right? Well, I mean, if you're state. in like Rhode Island, yeah, Rhode true. Island, yeah, has Rhode like, Island what, is the size. Is it, is it just like a county? I, I'm not sure. It's, it's really a county-sized county. state. Yeah. Yeah, like when I I took a train up from Providence to Boston, and most of that trip was in Massachusetts because by the time you like get out of Providence, you're basically you, already you f- out of Rhode Island. <laughs> as soon as you get on the train in Rhode Island, you're actually in Massachusetts already. Yeah, if you're sitting at the front of the train, like you're actually like in Massachusetts. <laughs> uh, but anyways, your alcohol and drinking was very much like wrapped up in life during this sort of like early American time. Um, this rapidly expanding industrialization and ob- urbanization and uh, immigration of workers, it's a lot of visations, um, that led to the proliferation of saloons and working men's bars as the you know, escape from this very difficult, challenging workplace and home life. 
many of these saloons were similar to the kind of modern brew, brew pubs funded by a specific brewery that exclusively sold like their own product. These politicians were frequent uh, patrons of these establishments, and it didn't take long for saloons to be associated with political corruption. You know, you go in, you have a few drinks, you bribe a dude. It's all good. <laughs> and that was, still happens. And it was connected to immigration, too. So you'd have immigrant workers who would come over and they would have legal troubles or they would have different sort of financial problems and they could use, you know, liquored up politicians or liquored up rich people and try to like, hey, like I need I need some help with this legal issue. I need some help with this thing or that because I'm an immigrant. I'm new here. And the natives of America were, you know, like at least the ones that were more nativistic, you know, they weren't too happy about that sort of thing where you could use alcohol and use liquor to kind of convince someone to give you favorable uh, type things. I mean, today what they use oysters, like <laughs> the, it's gone from like, I mean, I guess this alcohol, there's still alcohol in these places, but like. It'd be interesting to see like what American people, like lobbying is kind of a dirty word in America, but it is same, a dirty word. But it's, at the same it's, time, yeah. it's kind of accepted. Like, I don't feel like people are quite as angry. I mean, maybe they are. I guess maybe the recent the recent elections shows. Did you follow the are. Sanders campaign? Right. I mean, chance? I guess people are mad about lobbying, but well, I think people also don't necessarily know like exactly what lobbying is. Like when they think right. of lobbying, they think, you know, some like rich, like oil company spokesman just handing over a briefcase of money to a senator. Which they're probably when, I'm sure which, that does. That, that certainly happens. But lobbying can also include, you know. You calling your senator and telling them to vote a certain way. Right. That's that's yeah. technically yeah, lobbying. Like grassroots lobbying. Yeah. Um, Which I think is a good thing. But anyways, in response to this corruption and perception of corruption, the Anti-Saloon League was founded, which became the first modern uh, single-issue lobbying organization in America. It pioneered both that kind of grassroots uh, organizational structure we are talking about, as well as the use of pressure politics to enact legislative change. Uh, historian K. Austin Kerr says that this grassroots local approach really reinvigorated the t- temperance movement, which had kind of gone dormant during the uh, post-Civil War era. Uh, the League superseded the Prohibition Party uh, and the uh, WCTU as the most influential advocate of uh, Prohibition after these groups had expanded their efforts to other issues. In all these like temperance, in this temperance movement and this kind of move towards the government prohibition of alcohol, we see what's kind of a surprising union, at least to us today, maybe not as much back then, but the surprising union between kind of, you know, the moralistic, pious Protestants, um, Baptist types uh, that wanted to ban alcohol for moral reasons, believing that it was, you know, the root of all evil and that alcohol was going to destroy society. Um, and, you know, the big government social progressives that started coming around in the 1890s, early uh, 20th century, who wanted to use government sort of for the same ish, same ways, but their end goals are probably a little bit different. Um, progressives wanted to use government to ban things or to shape society in ways that made men better. To create the master create race. some sort of ubermensch. <laughs> yeah. um, and they use things, you know, ranging from prohibition to eugenics. Yeah, and forced um, sterilization. It's crazy to me that not that long ago in our country, they were forcibly sterilizing people. Like the, what was it? Um, was it Oliver Wendell Holmes who said three generations of imbeciles is enough? Yeah, it was like, Holmes. And by imbeciles, he meant black people. Like, that's that's pretty awful that, that that's yeah, I mean, the was, shared history of our, of our not company. Too, company of our country. Too different from, like, Hitler? No, it was. In it, some it, it ways, inspired. Like, well, it, well, the links are there. It inspired yeah, you the had, eugenics movement. Right, inspired you had, Hitler. Yeah. And then on the flip side, like, Hitler kind of helped kill the eugenics movement in the U.S. just because, like, Oh, hey, that's the conclusion of that. Let's let's not do that. Yeah, that's also. I think the political coalitions moved away from a desire to, you know, eugenicize when they realized that they actually needed minority votes in order to keep political power. Mm-hmm. Like the the left, the left realized that it the only way it was going to actually have any political power in the United States was by reaching out to minorities instead of trying to erase them. So right, but before World War II, you know, pro- what we call progressives today and there's some sort of lineage there were racist and they were very bigoted to everybody people. was racist but especially yeah the progressives <laughs> but but what's interesting is that they you know they took this pro prohibition stance because they believed that alcohol made, made men worse and by banning it that you could make society better and they you know maybe not directly but they took up arms with groups like the kkk 
you yeah. know, very anti-Semitic groups like that. And the KKK was a prominent supporter of alcohol prohibition. Um, historians argue that the Klan's resurgence in the 1920s was aided by this debate over prohibition. That uh, Michael Pendergast, he's a, a historian, says that the KKK's support for prohibition represented the single most important bond between Klansmen throughout the nation. So there was this massive movement of all sorts of kind of people. You know, you had you had the pious Protestants, you had the KKK, you had social progressives, all these type of people who are taking arms against alcohol and against this this kind of lifestyle, who found this bond that they could each that they could all gather to, together with, um, and unfortunately may have uh, made the KKK stronger. Yeah, and, and my litmus test for like is a thing good or not is like is the KKK one of the one of the one of the tests probably the, on the top of my list of tests for whether a thing is good or not is the KKK a fan of it and if the answer is yes that thing is probably not good <laughs> so like but um the, the it's crazy to me to think that that not only was prohibition supported by these good christian suburban housewives but also by the Ku Klux Klan that's that's a those are odd bedfellows that's a non-traditional partnership for you <laughs> and we Prohibition here, you know, it represented a conflict between values emerging in the United States. Uh, we already mentioned how big immigration played a role with saloons and, and urbanization. Um, but you even see not just kind of a social divide, but you see an ideological divide um, that was pr primarily between urban and rural areas. Native, like native people of America saw immigrants as drunkards and a threat to the American political order. And nativism became a very popular doctrine among prohibitionists who blamed uh, German and Irish immigrants, among others, as problematic, as drunkards, as alcoholics, and threatening the civil order of America. And it made sense that, you know, then many these urban immigrant communities opposed, opposed prohibition. And yeah, well, it's not like the Germans wanted to give up their beer. Yeah. Or the Irish their whiskey. Exactly. That's, you know, it made sense. Unfortunately for them, uh, World War II, World War One broke out around the same time, which just made prejudice against German immigrants much worse, and was likely a major factor that made the passage of prohibition politically feasible. You know, a lot of people, if you said, "Hey, let's ban alcohol together," were like, "Heck no!" But World War One breaks out, and you're like, "Hey, those Germans down the street support prohibition," and kind of the same argument that you just yeah. made about the KKK, like, you know, if if you're if you agree with the Germans on something, you're probably bad, and yeah. the Germans think that prohibition is bad, so therefore, so therefore prohibition is good. good. Yeah, let's snatch the liquor from the Kaiser's filthy hands. Kind of, yeah. Um. <laughs> and you had groups, you had groups like the KKK that were taking large stances, and strong anti-German stances, and, and anti-immigration stances um, to support prohibition. Strong anti-Irish stance too. We forget the it, you know it's we'll probably get to this later in the episode too, but. We forget the degree to which there was a hysteria surrounding Irish immigration in the United States. Mm -hmm. They were not loved, not beloved of the of the people in the U.S. Um, they were, you know, they were hated. They were really despised. And today, to think that somebody in the U.S. would be like hated for being an Irish immigrant is like almost unfathomable. Yeah, it seems like most of our discussion about immigrants is kind of colorism yeah like if you look different uh, well than i mean us, yeah it really is and, and i think that's what it is i think it is colorism and that if you look different than us then you're different but back then it was it wasn't even that it was like you have a different religion you're catholic like or, what the heck like, or your voice sounds funny your voice you have an irish accent like you've kissed the blarney stone yeah yeah I, everybody at different times in the united states's history has been afraid of different outsiders i mean that there is this xenophobia that it runs very deep in in the history of the united states and it, it definitely it's, it's arguably uh, arguably at least a little bit encouraging because we definitely have like fewer stupid reasons for hating people now. I mean, we've true. got some very stupid reasons that still persist, but you know, we're getting there. Like we're whittling them down. Yeah. Now, like, arguably, there's a rationale to be afraid of terrorism, but I mean, there was a rationale to be afraid of Irish terrorism too. I guess uh, you know, maybe there there was this fear of anarchism in the early 1900s that was probably not justified. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the same as it is today. You know, there's like a very, very tiny minority that screws up the public perception. Yeah. And rational fear is okay, but it's when you start using the power of the state to take away people's rights or take away, discriminate against people because where they're from or based off of their skin color that you have problems. Yeah. 
or like you know some of them are criminals therefore all of them must be like right. ineligible to enter our our community that's the the classic like would you eat a bowl full of m&ms if some of them were poison i'm like well how, well, how many of them are poison I really like M&Ms, though. That's is so there funny. enough poison in, in that bowl of M&Ms I mean, if you, to if, kill if you everyone in America? Ever, if you've ever driven a car in your entire life, that, that argument is completely invalid. Yeah. Because driving a car is like More eating, dangerous than eating, eating a bowl, a bowl of, of M&Ms. M&Ms with like... 90% of them are poison. Like 5% of them are poison. Like, <laughs> driving is one of the most dangerous things in the world. I hate to drive, uh, but I have to do it a lot. Um, anyway. We were talking about World War One. Yeah, um, the Germans. And World War One played another factor that probably led to prohibition being enacted uh, and that it was prohibition was just was considered a justification as a way to ration grain and other resources during the war. Um, during wartime, governments often use the war as an excuse to ration things. Economists, economic historians, kind of argue whether that's actually necessary or not. But it it happens, and by rationing grain and rationing other kinds of of resources, that was an excuse um, for prohibition. Yeah, it made it politically feasible when mm-hmm. the government could say, hey, don't turn that grain into beer. We need that to to feed the troops. Although at the time, I mean, we didn't even enter into World War One until pretty late in, so the, in the fight. So it's probably a bad argument, yeah. but they made it nonetheless. Um, prohibition, regardless, was a very politically de- divisive issue. And not generally what we think of politically divisive. It wasn't between the main political parties, between the Republicans and the Democrats, but within them. As a uh, illustration, in the presidential election of 1916, the Democratic incumbent Woodrow Wilson and the Republican candidate Charles Evans Hughes completely ignored the issue, as did both parties' political platforms. So it wasn't, you know, it was probably being talked about a lot, but they just completely ignored it. So like this, this, this is, this would be to me as if there was a divisive issue like ISIS or something crazy that's going on right now and the political parties just didn't talk about it i can't even well, imagine that happening so today. we actually do have something I mean, certainly not as like high profile as that kind of thing but um encryption which is i think becoming more and more relevant is actually pretty divisive on both parties because mm. you have people um you know like re- democrats like feinstein republicans like burr who are very anti-encryption completely want to sort of you know open it up undermine it then you also have uh democrats like wyden um, Republicans uh, like uh, Chaffetz, who were like very pro uh, encryption. Unfortunately, Chaffetz is leaving the house. He is. Yeah. Yeah. Although that, I guess that makes sense. Like we're looking back through history and realize how important prohibition was. But in you know, 1916, it might have been a fringe issue. People just didn't think it was that big of a deal. And then suddenly, whoa, we have a constitutional amendment and it's passed and everything's everything's done. Yeah, and it is unclear to what degree this issue actually mattered to the vast majority of the American people. We know that. Uh, a lot of them drank and, and quite heavily. So probably most people were not hugely in favor of prohibition. But anyway, uh, it was pushed through. It was made into a constitutional amendment. But as mentioned, the precedent began in uh, for a constitutional amendment to push prohibition through. The precedent started in 1881 with Kansas, which was the first state to outlaw alcoholic beverages in its state constitution. Advocates probably were worried that, that federal prohibition would be overturned as unconstitutional, Uh, as it was, in fact, in several states overturned by the courts. Arguably, a constitutional amendment to the U.S. Constitution would also be much more difficult to overturn than a simple law, even if that law was constitutional. So, didn't work out too well for them. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, in hindsight, like, when it's between you having booze and not having booze, like, people will care enough to, like, overturn that amendment. But if it's just, like, a... An obviously pretty bad amendment that can get overturned. Um, but the resolution calling for a constitutional amendment was passed by both congressional houses in December of 1917. By January 16th of 1919, the amendment had been ratified by 36 of the 48 states, making it the law of the land. So on October 28th, 1919, Congress passed enabling legislation, which was known as the Volstead Act, that allowed for the enforcement of prohibition. And I wonder how much of this was just a fluke um, when it was when it was passed the amendment was uh, passed by the house or the, by congress in 1917 it just happened that the dry factions of both parties had quite a bit of a majority and who knows how much of that was actually driven by prohibition and how much of it was just the voters were focused on other issues that were important to them and just the fact that the dry party had a majority it was ref- not reflective of any sort of public opinion at all which you know we can, we can talk about maybe that talk about that a little bit later is some of the weaknesses of yeah. democracy especially <laughs> yeah. like a republican democracy 
is that we always say if you don't like it, vote them out. But, but there's nobody does so that. many. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's another issue whether it works at all. But there's just so many issues that you you just can't do that, especially on if politicians don't toe the party line on like on this issue. I think not today. I mean, maybe encryption is a, a different issue. There's probably issues that they don't. But for the most part, I think politicians tend to 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 toe the party line. Yeah, and because of party politics, like most elected representatives trend towards the center, right? Like they they and their the people in their towns have very limited opportunities to pick somebody else, right? So they figure. I'm going to vote for the lesser of two evils. This is the weakness of democracy where, where people say, I'm going to vote for the lesser of two evils. I mean, sure, he might be bad on the prohibition thing, but I mean, what are the odds that he's actually going to get to take away my booze? In this specific instance, it it just happened, you know, that enough there was enough political will in Congress, maybe not in the entirety of the United States, but in Congress to get the law passed. And there were enough interested, you know, interest groups that could present pressure on the legislature to, to move it through. Yeah, maybe if it would have been the next year, or the next election cycle, maybe that would have flipped where you would have kept the same kind of Republican-Democrat composition like we usually see, but the dry and wet parties, would, like factions would have just flipped and this mm-hmm. would have never passed. It's hard to tell. Either way, enforcement of prohibition started on 16th of January, 1920. A total of uh, 1,520 federal prohibition agents were tasked with uh, enforcing prohibition. The government founded the Bureau of Prohibition, which was originally a unit of the Bureau of Internal Revenue, which then went on to become the IRS. So if you need another reason to hate the IRS, (laughs) there you go. They also used to enforce prohibition. Sometimes. Conversely, if you hate the IRS, is another reason to hate prohibition. This is the second time that the IRS has come up in our podcast, but I swear I've never smeared mustard on a check. <laughs> I mean, I haven't, I haven't yet. It's weird how much the IRS does come up with regulatory issues, though. Like, they play a surprisingly large role in regulation. Like, I mean, it's almost like internal revenue has a lot to do with how government yeah, functions. Surprise, yeah, surprise. It's almost like tax level. day was two days ago and the IRS is on our brains. Oh, man, you, you've revealed when this is being uh, recorded. Being You're really. Good, yeah. uh, you really show behind I, the curtain. I, I doubt it matters. <laughs> so anyways, uh, the agents were tasked with taking down these illegal bootlegging operations, and they really became notorious in cities like New York and Chicago for raiding popular nightclubs. Uh, these agents were often like paid like very low wages, uh, and they were very notorious. Uh, sorry, rather, the Bureau was very notorious for allowing uncertified people to become agents. You know, it, it's kind of like the way uh, the TSA was recording pe- re- uh, recruiting people off like ads on pizza boxes. Um, yeah. So uh, these agents were um, not perceived super positively by the public. You know, uh, taking where the booze is bad enough, but they were notorious for killing civilians that got cut up, caught up in the middle of gunfights uh, between them and the bootleggers. Uh, they were wiretapping phones, and there was just like a lot of general rampant corruption in the bureau. Yeah, if you're not guilty of bootlegging, you have nothing to hide. So don't stand in front of those bootleggers. <laughs> yeah, the, they were they were they were well That's known your fault. for taking bribes. You know, if you were a big enough distiller, uh, was making liquor, or beer under the table, you have the uh, friendly prohibition agent stop by and maybe you know. Give him a drink. Grease some palms. Give him a give him a dollar bill. I don't know, a hundred dollar bill. I don't, whatever. Back then, was one dollar was the same $1 as a hundred dollars. It was close. I don't think that's quite. It's pretty no, bad. I'm, I mean, inflation's sure. bad. It's like five dollars to a hundred, but you could probably that's still wow. you could probably give him a couple bucks and he might turn the other way. And they didn't have much incentive to really care. Hey, <laughs> uh, I know it's my job to like turn you in for this crime that you're doing, but I'll just I'll just risk my like whole career. For like three dollars, like that's crazy. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't actually look up how much they made, but if they were paid low wages, like maybe it actually wasn't that risky. They were doing this because it was a job, and you get fired, you can go on to something else. Yeah. But taking the bribe, you you could make a lot of money. That's true. So, so enforcement was problematic. That's what you're. That's what you're yeah, telling. We'll get to it that was, later. and um, it it got even worse. In uh, 1929, Congress passed the Jones Law, uh, which actually increased the penalties set by the uh, Volstead Act. So it increased the uh, penalty from six months in prison and a $1,000 fine to five years and a $10,000 fine. That seems so, kind of severe. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's for first-time offenders. That's, and that's, yeah. that's 1920s that's money, too. That's like $10 million. No, it's a lot of money. not that many. It's not that much. It's but not it's, that many dollars. It's, it's, it's a few. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's several. <laughs> it's, not, um, it's not a couple dollars. It's yeah. more than several, but less than a few. <laughs> 
Okay. Um, so, yeah, that really increased the tensions between uh, the Bureau and these illegal speakeasies and bootleggers and whatnot. Yeah, and people, uh, as we said, I, there's probably not a ton of data on this, but the evidence is there that prohibition was never like something that people wanted because people really it became controversial basically immediately. I mean, it was highly controversial among medical professionals, actually, because alcohol was at that time widely prescribed by physicians for, for therapeutic purposes. Like, oh, doc, my chest is, I've got a mysterious chest pain. And the doctor says, here, take a dram of whiskey and call me in the morning. And people did that. Um, <laughs> like, doctor, I've got this strange pain in my liver. Have you tried whiskey for it? <laughs> um, but, I mean, you joke, but like whiskey is actually a pretty like good treatment for like a sore throat. I yeah, use it, it is, uh, pretty but often. not for cirrhosis. Not, not for cirrhosis. <laughs> not not for cirrhosis of the liver. Now, <laughs> which this is the second time we've said the word cirrhosis of the liver. I think that's going to become it, a it, common. Although theme. maybe it would maybe you would die more quickly. For wow, that's grim. That's, um, that's physician assisted suicide that you're talking about right there. Slow, yeah, but still, <laughs> that's yeah. that's what doctors prescribing whiskey was was, was slow physician assisted suicide. Um, but anyway, doctors lobbied for the legalization of medicinal liquors. Um, so from 1921 to 1930, they earned about $40 million for whiskey prescriptions. Because if it's medical, then it's legal, right? Um, <clears throat> but as early as 1925, H.L. Mencken, a pretty famous journalist, believed that prohibition was, was not working. And he claimed that it basically just targeted poor people, the working class poor, while rich families had no penalties so like every law ever it targets the poor and the rich don't suffer the consequences uh but historian elizabeth cohen writes a rich family could have a cellar full of liquor and get by it seemed but if a poor family had one bottle of homebrew there would be trouble and you know for sure the upper classes could afford to stockpile alcohol in their homes before the 18th amendment even went into effect because woodrow wilson and warren g harding you know both presidents did that they, before the amendment went into effect they were like hey uh go buy all the alcohol and, and I we'll keep it in our basement i believe there's evidence that there was alcohol in the white house and that it wasn't you know just stored it was served like yeah. at meals yeah well but of course it was i mean the, the laws don't apply to the rich yeah, uh, or the or powerful the <laughs> yeah actually uh there's a there's an interesting story about the guy who was basically the bootlegger for congress all of the congressmen were drinking. There was one guy who even had an office in Congress where he would bring in the booze in a suitcase and distribute it to the, to the reps. It was, you know, hypocrisy at its most basic. But since the demand for alcohol obviously failed to just disappear after prohibition became law, bootlegging, which was both illegal production and distribution, was embraced even by, like, previously law-abiding citizens. So... One example of bootlegging was that grape juice remained legal during Prohibition, but, I mean, if you've ever made your own wine, you'll know that it doesn't take very long for grape juice to become wine, <laughs> uh, and it can be fermented into, you know, a 12% ABV wine within about 60 days, so a couple months, and grape juice production and consumption actually quadrupled during Prohibition as Americans took advantage of this. <laughs> which kept vineyards afloat during the era. They weren't making wine, they were making grape juice. And you can't see the air quotes, but I assure you, they are there. And then they sold it to people, and people just let it rot and, and then drank it. Interesting, yeah, that's what vineyards did. But when you think, like, what did distilleries and breweries do? They made ice cream. <laughs> yeah, they made ice cream, apparently. So And also beer. So <laughs> if you're from Pennsylvania, you probably like, like yingling. You, and mean, you mean lager? <laughs> the only lager? Yeah. But what Yingling did was they opened up an ice cream and dairy plant, and they also made a thing called near beer, which is like a non-alcoholic beer, 0.5%. Uh, yeah. Probably disgusting, never had it. Um, it just tastes like it's not great. Yeah. It's so, kind of like kvass. Yeah. A lot of big breweries were able to stay alive, like Coors, Anheuser-Busch, PBR. Um, interestingly, Coors started a ceramics business um, in the time called Coors Tech, and they're actually still around and still the largest engineered ceramic ma manufacturer what? with over 1.25 billion dollars in sales every year what so they, they kind of made it out okay i guess yeah. like that I worked guess. out for them pretty well unfortunately a lot of small time breweries didn't survive and we can probably talk about this at the end this, after repeal yeah. but 
this is what led to the corporatization of the American beer culture. This is why yeah, you see like yeah. after prohibition there weren't there's was no such there wasn't really such a thing as craft brewing or for like small town 70 years for a yeah. very very long time. And some of that was because they went out of business during prohibition and some of that was because of predatory after prohibition as well. Yeah, and also like just the, the predatory sort of Anheuser-Busch doesn't make good beer, but it's very good at business. It, you know, bought up any competitors very, very quickly. Um, but, you know, despite what Prohibition said it was going to do and, and did drive above ground, you know, production out of business, it was actually pretty weakly enforced in a lot of ways. Um, from the beginning, the 18th Amendment lacked legitimacy in the eyes of the public, you know, public previously, people in the public who previously had been drinkers and law-abiding citizens suddenly became criminals. Um, yep. They weren't going to give up their alcohol because somebody in Washington told them they had to. They were going to keep doing it in whatever way that took. Um, in some instances, the public viewed prohibition laws as arbitrary and unnecessary. I'd say a lot of laws like that are today. <laughs> um, Isn't that every law, John? Every law? Uh, and therefore, they were willing to break them. Law enforcement found themselves overwhelmed by the rise uh, in illegal wide-scale alcohol distribution. And there were a few other uh, ways that weak enforcement was kind of forced. And we talked about in the Whiskey Rebellion that because of just, you know, the, the vast is the size of America, because we have mountains, we have valleys, we have rivers. The Appalachians. The Appalachians. And just because the United States is so big, and this is before internet, this is before planes, before fast cars, there just weren't enough agents to go around to every single county and every single city in America and say, hey, stop drinking. Hey, stop producing this. There yeah. just literally wasn't enough people and enough power for the government to do this. Yeah, they were never going to get all of those stills in the back country of Tennessee. And especially in areas where prohibition was strongly opposed. Um, yeah. We already mentioned the rural versus urban distinction and that there were area, literally geography divided ideology. And it mm -hmm. still does today. But like you, there were some areas of the country where you literally just couldn't enforce this because people wouldn't let you. Very similar to what we saw in the Whiskey Rebellion. Yeah. Right. So in terms of resistance to uh, enforcement, prohibition was notorious for enabling organized crime. Prior to 1920, mafia groups were mostly limited to you know, prostitution, gambling, theft, you know, the funnest things in life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm I, uncomfortable I, with that. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I thought I'm, you said you were a good Christian. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm completely kidding here. Um, so prohibition created this profitable and often violent black market for alcohol, which provided a financial basis for organized crime to flourish. Uh, crime rates had greatly increased in uh, most major U.S. cities, and despite the fact that prohibition movement was hoping to, you know, hoping that outlawing uh, alcohol would reduce crime, the reality was that the Volstead Act led to higher crime rates than were experienced prior to prohibition. And uh, you know, this black market that was established was pretty much dominated by criminal organizations. In fact, the infamous crime boss, Al Capone, and his friends, uh, they attained fame during the Prohibition era. And it, it, there's, you know, kind of an obvious parallel to the drug war of today um, where, you know, illegal drugs are more potent and more dangerous. Kind of the same way bootlegged liquor was stronger and more dangerous. And you know, ironically, in an attempt to crack down on illegal production using ethyl alcohol, uh, the prohibition, um, sorry, rather the uh, the federal government actually ordered the poisoning of industrial alcohol. That's insane to me. Like, here's this idea: like, oh hey, this stuff's bad for you, so let's just kill you. Let's make it worse. <laughs> so, a as many as ten thousand people died from drinking uh, denatured alcohol before prohibition ended. That is crazy. Um, and actually, even more desperate people tried to filter sterno. That sterno, which is this fuel used for camp stoves, uh, that they tried to filter that into like a drinkable liquor, which uh, was poisonous, um, though usually not lethal. So yeah, that's like the kind of. But the no same doubt thing. people died. Like, and there's also evidence that or went blind. Yeah, or went blind. There's evidence that the government knew this was happening and just didn't care. Yeah, of course they didn't care. It was the poor who were dying of yeah. the poisoned alcohols, and yeah. as we've said before, the government don't care about the poor. And so people uh, would often try to just make alcohol in their own homes. Uh, you, you could make wine pretty easily, I think you mentioned before, from just legally obtaining some grape juice yeah. and letting it ferment. Uh, bath just let it sit for a couple months. <laughs> yeah. Uh, bathtub gin was also pretty popular in northern urban areas. And uh, moonshine was uh, made you know, pretty commonly in rural areas in the south. And It still know, is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, it definitely is. And you know, those who produced this you know, illegal liquor 
with the intention to sell it, they would uh, in, they invented they sorry they invested in uh, faster and more resilient cars, uh, which were given the name Moonshine Runners. Yeah, because they had to outrun the cops. Yeah, and this actually led to the birth of stock car racing, like uh, NASCAR, you know, which actually kind of explains some of the Southern love for the sport. I also just want to note that in the notes for this, uh, John put the word sport in uh, quotation marks. And yeah, I guess NASCAR's like, not as, a sport. As a, as a Southerner, that, that cuts deep. <laughs> Golf isn't a sport either, people. Yeah, but we can talk about whether 60-year-old men can too. play your, your game. It's not a okay. sport. We, we've had this conversation off podcast. Parts of Florida are the South. Parts of it are not. I am from the Southern part. That's fair. Anyways, yeah, speaking of shine runners, my, my great-grandpappy was a shine runner in, in West Virginia awesome. back in the day. I mean, we think. They're, like, we're not 100% sure, but he definitely had. That's one of those things that you just choose to believe. Well, yeah, but I mean, my mom remembers that her grandfather had a secret cabinet under the deck that she was not allowed to go into. And then one day she saw them taking bottles out of it, and, and it was that was where they kept the shine. <laughs> But um, yeah, prohibition was a it was a failure. It really was, and it was finally repealed on December fifth of nineteen thirty three, way after it should have been. Um, but people began to realize that it really had some awful follow on effects. Uh, the Association Against the Prohibition Amendment, the AAPA, or APA, played a major role in the repeal. Actually, uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. He was a lifelong non-drinker, and he contributed a lot of money between three hundred and fifty thousand and seven hundred thousand to the Anti-Saloon League, which, again, in the dollars of the day, was quite a quite a chunk of cash. He actually eventually came out against prohibition and announced his support for repeal because of the widespread social problems he believed prohibition had caused, and a lot of conservative farmers who had previously supported prohibition now we're fighting for repeal because of the negative effects uh, negative effects it had on their businesses and on, on agriculture in general um, Which, you know shows how strong public interest or private interest can be um, against government things that, overreach against government overreach and even against things that you think you believe yeah um, <laughs> it hurts my business yeah, whether that's <laughs> good or bad. Is fine is whether, <laughs> that's, whether that's good or bad um, I think you can think of a bad example maybe is if theft you're gonna like commit theft against someone even though you don't believe in it because it's it's good for you but then you but then you can, i mean <laughs> but then you can kind of see the opposite and and economists talk about this all the time is that self-interest can play a good part against you know what you believe in terms of like racism and bigotry is that if you are bigoted towards a large group of people as a businessman probably not going to work out for you yeah. too well and you're going to lose a lot of business and especially as society in general starts becoming less bigoted and you try to hold on to those beliefs your self-interest is going to be fighting against that so that can go can go both ways yeah and you know there probably were there probably was genuinely an issue for some of these farmers because they would have had to deal with bootleggers uh, and the, the coming for their grain and everything and it probably wouldn't have been a fantastic environment for them but many women actually joined the repeal movement because Prohibition was, as we said before, pretty strongly a, a woman's movement. Um, led to the eventual, eventually led to the, the suffrage movement, women's suffrage movement. But actually, after they saw the effects of prohibition, many women joined the repeal movement, uh, and they had recently been politically empowered by the Nineteenth Amendment in 1919. So, I mean, that's well, that was like 13, 14 years after they gained the vote. They decided to, hey, remember when we made booze illegal? Well, we're going to make it legal again now. So activist Pauline Sabin uh, founded the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform, WAMPER, uh, and <laughs> argued that repeal would protect families from the corruption, violent crime, and underground drinking that had resulted from prohibition, which it did historically. Um, the Great Depression likely played a major role in the repeal of prohibition. Prior to the 1920 implementation of, of the Volstead Act, approximately 14% of uh, federal, state, and local tax revenues were derived from alcohol commerce. So it was a very, uh, you know, the government decided, hey, actually, we want that tax money back. <laughs> and people said, oh, man, the economy's just in the toilet. I need a drink. So as an illegal good, alcohol couldn't be taxed or contribute to the legitimate economy. So many argued that repeal was an economic necessity. And, and there was controversy on whether the repeal should be a state or a nationwide decision. But 
repeal took its first steps on February 20th, 1933, when Congress formally uh, proposed the repeal. And on March 22nd of that same year, Frank, Frank, Frankie D, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Prezi Frankie D, uh, signed an amendment to the Volstead Act known as the Cullen Harrison Act, allowing the manufacture and sale of 3.2% beer and light wines. So they sort of partially repealed prohibition. And, um, but nine months later, the 21st Amendment was ratified by the s- state ratifying conventions. And uh, that was specifically selected for the purpose of repealing prohibition. It was the only amendment to have done that, um, to have gone through the state ratifying convention process. All other amendments had been ratified by state legislatures. And this is a hole in my research, but it'd be interesting to see if the Colin Harrison Act was even close to constitutional. I have a feeling it wasn't. Yeah. Um, and that FDR, I mean, like, you know, FDR and the Constitution, it's a fun topic. But, um, <laughs> the, the continuing tension between FDR and the a, Constitution. Probably not a great relationship there to begin a with. A love-hate story. But this might have been, like, one of the good things he actually did was, like, say, hey, the Constitution says you can't drink and that's really bad so i'm just gonna say screw it i'm gonna like i'm gonna let you produce some beer so that people don't go crazy and uh, you know it's probably a good decision and he was probably praised politically for it but it doesn't I mean, as matter any, that much because you know it's only nine months later that it was actually made legal yeah and he, he yeah i mean like anything fdr did he only did it because he was praised politically for it i mean it was yeah. he was a very intelligent uh politically intelligent person that's all I'll say about Frankie D. Yeah, um, and, if you, and if you look at the dates, this was like literally right after he was elected. He yeah. did this. So. He knew it was a smart call. Right. Anyway, so there's been a lot of alcohol development since then, but that's probably a, a topic for another issue uh, or a, a topic for another podcast. So we're not going to go into all of that and all the blue laws and everything and the dry states and counties. But we just to say, a l- there's already. a lot of legacy of prohibition that's still around. Yeah, oh, yeah. The, the ATF. That's an interesting topic too. But it is thankfully being slowly but surely rolled back. The so, you know, and no, I just oh, the, mean the the, the, <laughs> the model, like the modern holdover, holdovers of uh, yeah. prohibition. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, maybe, maybe in another like hundred years we'll have like full alcohol freedom. Yeah, I mean, we are oh, running out maybe. of time, but I just want to throw out one really interesting fact: is that brew pub, brew pubs, which we kind of mentioned earlier, along with saloons, which are uh, pubs or bars where breweries are allowed to directly sell their brews to uh, consumers were illegal in every single state until Washington made them legal in 1982. That's crazy to me. And That's just crazy. What's even crazier are there are still some states that prohibit that sort of like direct sales. Like uh, sure. Certain, certain kinds of direct sales. Now, brew pubs are technically legal in every state. But they do have to serve, I believe they have to serve food, right? Yeah, some qualify. states I think you have to serve like 40 to 50% that's of your fine. I'm, has o- to come I'm okay food. with that. <laughs> I, I want to go I mean, to a brew pub and have some like. I agree. Cheese that's fries. better than I, that's better than the alternative. Every brew pub should be legally, uh, like legally forced to sell me cheese fries. That's that uh, that should be a law. Yeah, we can talk that's about, the we only can, law that I'm okay about with. That off off, t- off uh, mic. <laughs> As we mentioned, anti-immigrant fear really drove a lot of the uh, like through the political support behind prohibition, and we still see a, a similar uh, factor in politics today. The Trump campaign really capitalized on this anti-immigrant mentality that's been around basically since the beginning of our nation and really like just beyond our nation really since pretty much all of human history. Yeah, fear of the other is kind of a classic mm-hmm. human thing. Yeah, and it really sh- prohibition really shows how just how strong of like a political motivator this can be for change. And it still is. I mean, we've now we're seeing a resurgence of nativism as a but it but it's it's been there since the 20s. The mm-hmm. fear of these people who are different from us will come in and subvert our political order and will change everything to suit them. And, you know, that's what they were afraid of with the Irish. They were afraid that Irish immigrants would come in and would take over the American political system. And from a you know, theoretical perspective, that is something to worry about. You do have people who are coming from foreign lands, from lands that might have different laws. They might have yeah. different customs and different kinds of societies and coming in and they're going to inevitably kind of overturn the status quo in some way and that's something yeah. that people were probably legitimately worried about now and with the irish it did happen like that they did become politically powerful and like there have been many irish politicians there have been irish presidents like it just turns out that it actually wasn't that bad or that big of a right. deal <laughs> like you know jfk was irish and 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 you know from like two generations prior people had been saying oh the irish are the worst and then two generations later jfk was president like it's Immigrants do assimilate 
quickly, typically in the American experience, they've, they've, they've assimilated quickly, and they tend to be more law-abiding than native citizens. And it's interesting if you see people using nativism as an excuse for prohibition because they were afraid of the overturning of civil order. But isn't that exactly what prohibition did? Yeah. Like, <laughs> prohibition like literally destroyed civil order in many cities across the country. And in yeah, many country areas across the country, too. I mean, yeah, all over. Yeah. And, and if we're even going to go like more to the philosophical level, you can see a breakdown not just from crime, per se, from theft and murder, but just a breakdown in people's opinion of the law itself. Um, so if you have, you know, coming from on high, you have the lawmakers making this law that people disagree with, and they no longer feel some sort of moral obligation to follow this law, it then kind of becomes arbitrary what other laws you follow too, right? Yeah. So, you know, I don't like this law because I want to drink and because I don't, I think it's arbitrary and unnecessary. Maybe there's other laws that I don't like either. And it encourages people to embrace legal positivism, to right. say like, oh, you know, the rules aren't rules unless they can catch me. So that that's how everybody behaves. That's how we all drive. Like, Oh, absolutely. I, although, I mean, I'd say maybe not everybody. There's lots of people who, be, you know, obey laws just because they are laws. Like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm like a, a, a good boy who, like, follows the rules because they are rules. But, like, many people will say, you know, rules don't count unless they are enforced. You know, I can drive as fast as I want unless there's a cop there to watch me. That's that's many people. That's their attitude towards the laws. And I would say prohibition probably was a central motivator for that attitude towards towards the law entering into the American consciousness. Well, yeah, I mean, especially you, know, you have these cases of these enforcement agents that were just sort of like, you know, recklessly endangering civilians. They were corrupt. They were violent. They were incompetent. And that, you know, that undermines, you know, public trust in in the government and law enforcement and you know now we have a similar issue now with yeah. police violence and that creates this sort of like us versus them mentality that's uh, just not good for anyone and it is a vicious cycle i mean i've like i've said before i think it's going to get worse before it gets better but we're not going to get into that um <laughs> that's a that's a big topic but i definitely think that prohibition is such a it's such a fascinating portion of our history and we barely touched on any of it yeah <laughs> Yeah. I mean, how how given the complete failure of this, probably America's greatest attempt at at regulation, period. You know, what does that say about the massive regulatory state today? Why? Why has our modern regulatory state been so much more effective than prohibition was? Was it is it because prohibition was damned by the size of its ambition, like trying to say, here's what we perceive as a massive social ill. We're going to stop it with a law. Maybe they tried to, you know, they, they bit off more than they could. I mean, chew. if I put in like a 30 second two cents you know i think it's just because they tried to do it democratically hmm. they did it they used the democratic safeguards and we were able to repeal it because of that yeah, but what do we do today we use the administrative state we use the fourth branch of government that's completely unaccountable in many ways and there's nothing we can really do that's true yeah we can just hope that you know rich people buy enough politicians to change those laws in our favor <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's what we do is we hope that that the laws will get changed because the people who actually control the government will decide that they're not in their best interest. Well, on that uh, incredibly, you know, bright, cheery, not at all cynical note. So I think that's the episode for today. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Josh Evans. I'm John Nelson. And I'm Drew Brackbill. Enjoy our podcast responsibly.